With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Welcome to the Futurati podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast. Today, we're interviewing Kai Faust, who is the CEO and founder of Infopop, a company that focuses on spatial computing. Kai, thanks so much for being with us. Great to be here. Could you start by giving us some information on your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems that you're working on today? Sure. Uh, so I started Infopop as a vision for something that can help increase access to spatial information. And to define what that is, it's all the information that is around us in our physical worlds. And the way I started thinking about this was that we have such a small bandwidth with the information that's in our physical environments. We have some simple senses like vision uh, and other senses. And we also have semantic understanding that we can develop uh, that we can also communicate with others through through words, voice, and text. But there's a lot of information that's not accessible to us and which is uh, has such little bandwidth. And to define what that is, I mean the three-dimensional forms of things and the semantic understanding of them in a, a way that's more efficient and scales greater than one individual human or a network of humans. And so... I see a future where computers will have an understanding of the physical world that exceeds any individual human or a network of humans. Uh, I see a, a future where computers will have a three-dimensional representation of space, both indoors and outdoors, the entire planet will have a digital representation of it in three in three-dimensional space. And it'll have apps built on that information to improve humans' lives. And so to get there, there's different kind of technologies that we will need. And for now, what interests me are primarily mobile phones and how we can give people greater access to spatial information with their mobile phones. And as new technologies develop, what excites me is when computers have a greater, higher fidelity of understanding of spatial information and in real time. And so there's a uh, there's there's different considerations and different kinds of spatial information we can capture for different use cases, but that paints a picture of what excites me the most about Infopop um, and what drives me. So 
one potential point of confusion is this idea of spatial computing. So could you start by just defining that and tell us how it's separate from augmented reality or virtual reality, which it resembles? Sure. Augmented reality is a application enabled by spatial computing. And so is virtual reality. And spatial computing is any kind of computation happening on uh, digital representations of physical space. And so an example is augmented reality that we can experience on our phones and glasses and in the future other ways. But the fundamental nature of the information is something where we can develop novel applications on top of that information. And so augmented reality allows us to have a human computer interaction, but the underlying technology is spatial computing. In some of the demonstrations that I've seen you give, you've got the search engine that will allow you to look around for nails in a, in a hardware shop or something like that. So the spatial computing aspect is, I, I guess, the software layer underneath that application. Is that right? Yeah. And the nails example is a good one. When people are at a store and they're looking for a particular product, it's spatial computing that enables them to be able to find that product in space. Okay. Could you talk a little bit about how it is that you build that information representation of the space around a person? The way I see people building spatial information for themselves in the immediate term and the future are two different answers. And so I'll start with the near term. I think that people's mobile phones are going to be the personal computer that enables the collection and uh, development of spatial information. And this can work with a couple of different ways. So to capture a three-dimensional representation of the space, uh, we can use a technology that does simultaneous uh, localization and mapping at the same time so that the phone, as it moves through space, uses the camera to develop a three-dimensional representation of the space. And that same technology can be used to figure out where the phone is in space later on for another device or another person experiencing uh, or accessing that 3D map. So you took a lot of pictures of the area, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay, and then what was walk us through what it was like to build the actual tagging for everything. Like, like how do you know where everything at is? Is that just something that you enter into a database manually or do you have some sort of process for extracting that information? What we're trying to build first is the foundational layer of being able to handle all the information and the, the minimally viable product that we've started with is manual note taking. And where I see this going in the future is finding ways to make that information collection and understanding faster. And the way we can do that is with AI. AI allows us to automate the process of tagging the physical world. So right now it's mostly manual, but you want to develop algorithms for automatizing that. Yeah. And there are other ways we can do this as well, like just scanning barcodes, which are simpler forms of computer vision. Um, and so for retailers to get the spatial information for the stores, the collection, the information we really collect is just the location of the barcodes in the store. That's fascinating. So one of, one of the topics I've, I've actually written quite a quite a bit about is this idea of three dimension or um, uh, having search engines for the physical world around us. Um, if, if as an example, 
we wanted to search on a smell or a taste or search on there. There's lots of attributes that we currently uh, don't know how to search for right now. Uh, I want something with this texture, with this level of reflectivity, with this harmonic vibration. Um, all of these things, uh, eventually we're going to have with enough sensors cropping up in the world, we're going to have the ability to search on those things. Um, and so I, I see this tying in very closely with what you're working on here. Uh, and sometime in the future, what I've been speculating on is that cities will have drones that are flying over on a regular basis. Uh, and over time, the, uh, the resolution will get better and better that they're able to uh, define the, the, the space of a city and be able to then search on that and that space and then do do searches such as where is that dog with rabies right now or what's the most dangerous intersection in the city uh that sort of thing is that kind of the the vision that you guys have well i, I like the description of some of the ideas that you were just outlining um being able to search in fundamentally different ways than just text and searching with elements like haptics and smell, et cetera, uh, are all really interesting. And also just the, the overall trajectory of technology doing what's called in the, in the spatial mapping world, remote sensing, which is just the taking in all these different data sources into one cohesive narrative of a truth of the physical world. I think where we start is using computer vision to identify objects in the real world and using technologies that are already accessible to us to query for information about the physical world. And so it will largely be dependent on where we are technologically, what kind of products exist in the world that enable us to perform queries related to these other forms of searching. Yeah, I'm sort of curious as to what that might look like. Wouldn't we need a richer vocabulary for describing textures or reflectivity or smells and things than we currently have? If we're not searching through text, the ubiquitous mechanism by which to engage with a search algorithm, what what are we talking to and how are we talking to it? I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? I realize it's far afield from what you're actually doing day to day, but while we have you here, do you, do you have any speculation on this? I think we'll have to wait for brain-computer interfaces to get pretty high level fidelity information about the real time state of our brains in order to do a lot of these things. That's really interesting. So, so instead of trying to develop a different set of semantic mappings, you just build a technology that kind of sucks that semanticity out of your brain. Like it understands what you meant and what you wanted. And then it goes and finds that thing. Yeah, I think so. And to me, that's quite exciting. And regardless of timelines, Brain-computer interfaces are ultimately the end game of any of this technology. And so it is quite exciting to have the prospect of having the interest to find where I can find the following smell that I'm imagining, et cetera. Yeah, I had speculated on this idea that, um, you know, the number of people that actually upload a terabyte of information every day uh, is is few and far between. There's there's very few people that do that. But I I was speculating that we would have 
this hardware, this gear that people would be putting on and their job would be to walk around and to upload information. And, and I referred to these people as the terabiters because I thought <laughs> they'd be the ones uploading just tons and tons of information as they're walking around and they'd have all these sensors and cameras and stuff on their, on their head. And that would be their job. They'd get paid to walk into buildings, probably the ones that they're not supposed to go into, but they would uh, be wandering around and they would actually be uploading all of this information constantly. And, using that information then to do the the search engines for the physical world. That's that's kind of how I kind of backed into this whole idea. Yeah, well, one thing that occurred to me as he was talking about uh, brain-computer interfaces is that it, the tagging might go the other way. So it, it might not just be that your search input is taken from your brain. It could also be that the information is gathered from your brain. So a terabyter is wandering around, and you've got this brain-computer interface that's just kind of reading things off of it, and they're recognizing a dog or a fire hydrant, and they're just it's tagged automatically with some intermediary algorithm that stands between the InfoPop database and somebody's raw brain signals. Right. And that would let you query your own memories of everything you've ever experienced or the memories and experiences of other people. Yeah, exactly. It reminds me of a Hano Ryanimi story called The Quantum Thief, where there's this city on Mars and there's an exo memory where everything that's ever happened to anybody has been basically live streamed up. And and I, I won't give too much of it away, but it turns out there are these interesting discrepancies that lead to the realization that there's been some shenanigans going on and uh, uh, a large scale conspiracy, but it, it's really central to the story that there's this memory bank that you can search and you can, you can like surf other people's experiences in a way that is really compelling and might possibly be enabled by the technology that you're describing. Yeah. In 2005, there was a, I remember reading about a Japanese researcher that had put on a set of glasses and he was recording everything he saw all day long. And, uh, and so then if he lost his keys, as an example, he could just go back and search and find where he left his keys. So that that uh, it was kind of one of the real early uh, kind of uh, ideas of things behind Google Glass and a lot of the other um, hardware pieces that have been we've seen lately. We still we still haven't mastered that yet. I mean, we're we're still a long ways from coming up with the. I don't know, the perfect headset, the perfect glasses. Uh, I think we're getting closer. We're not there yet. Have you heard of Gordon Bell? Uh, Kai, have you heard of Gordon Bell? He was an early Silicon Valley investor and inventor who eventually grew very wealthy, but he became really well known for building what has now come to be called a life log. So this guy wore like a pendant around his neck that took pictures every five seconds. He recorded everything that he ever listened to on the radio and conversations. He logged every website he ever went to. And eventually he started getting into things like what you're describing, where he would look for his keys or he could go back and see a post-it note that was on his computer a year ago and use that in a toast or a speech that he was giving. And it was pretty remarkable and it gave rise to all these interesting challenges in organizing the data and finding it and dealing with it in various different ways. And I bet he would love what you guys are doing. Yeah, sounds like it. So could, we've already alluded to the search engine and the hardware store. Could you talk a little bit about, I don't know, the next eight months, the next two years? Like, what are the things you want to roll out? I mean, searching for your car keys is kind of an obvious one, but I'm sure you've given thought to some other interesting projects you, you could build in this space. Yeah. So I mentioned retailers as one of the places that is going to be interesting to give people access to where products are on a, on a shelf um, using their mobile phones. And I think there's other 
use cases that are interesting with mobile phones for any kind of environment that is novel. And I think it's also interesting for use cases for places like parking lots where you're trying to find your car or malls or any new environment, maybe a party that you're at in the future once we're past this coronavirus to find where the bathroom is at that party. These are the kinds of things where you can quickly get access to be able to navigate through a novel space to get to where you want to go. I think that's really like the extent of what is interesting in the mobile space. I think things that are more like experiences that come out of images that are for like marketing or things that don't have much utility or just for entertainment are not as interesting. I think the social elements of AR, like what Snap is doing uh, is, is interesting. And it's kind of the barbell nature of mobile AR is the Snap kind of uh, use cases of social networking. And then there's util utility use cases. And Infopop's focusing on the utility cases at this point in time. And so finding stuff in retail stores, finding stuff in novel environments is where we're focusing in the next couple of years. Going beyond that, thinking about how to better increase the information that we can get about physical environments that leap beyond the limitations of mobile phones. AR glasses are interesting for that. And so are smart cameras. AR glasses have their pros and cons and smart cameras have their pros and cons. But I'm interested in both of these things. AR glasses are really interesting for distributed generation of information. And smart cameras are interesting for real-time understanding of, of the information. Smart cameras also have the advantage of not requiring hardware to be on the person. Smart cameras have the potential to be linked together to cover an entire building or home, to give real-time access to the information about the home or building. So when, when you That's refer... That. When you refer to smart cameras, is that cameras that just talk to each other? Yes. Cameras that talk to each other is part of it, but also cameras that have a graphics processing unit that compute the spatial information. Like they're doing image segmentation, things like that. Yeah. So cameras can be linked together to generate a three-dimensional model of the environment and to automatically tag items in that environment. So in the cases of you lost your keys, this is a difficult problem to solve with just a mobile phone, but it could be easily solved if you have cameras in your physical environment. Fantastic. So one thing I'm curious about is what we're going to do with all this information about the environment. So the, the search use case is an obvious piece of low hanging fruit, but you, you've alluded several times to gathering more information about the physical world. What exactly is it that we're looking for? Like what's the information that you want to gather the colors of things or the chemical compositions? What's the point of getting all this? I think that AI that is given access to a vast array of raw data about our physical worlds will enable artificial general intelligence to do some incredible things that we cannot yet anticipate. But in the near-term future, I think we can develop apps as humans on a platform that enables a high-level understanding of what's happening. So what that would include is an understanding of what items are in the environment, who is in that environment, 
And what is the activity going on in the environment? So, so going a little bit deeper into the activities portion of the semantic understanding, computers can understand what we are actually doing in space and we could take advantage of the analytics and we can take advantage of automation, triggering if this, then that kind of logic for anything happening in our physical worlds. So would that be looking for a violent crime happening or finding people to play Jenga with? What, what are some of the things you have in mind? And I do want to get back to the AGI piece, but for now, let's focus on what the humans will be doing. I would predict with high confidence that nation states will develop technologies that do this kind of stuff for the general public and public spaces. What I'm mostly interested in is personal computing use. I would like to automate my own life and I would like insights into my own life. And I would like for all those insights to happen without me wearing hardware and without me manually inputting any information. And cameras in our physical environments enable all of that. So that means you probably don't want uh, the neural link to have a hole drilled in your head either, huh? <laughs> I think that the air glasses that I would be interested in adopting would be ones that are no heavier than normal prescription glasses are. And that's going to be a little while from now. Neuralink, I may not be the first customer, but the more developed it gets, the more interested I will likely become in it. Yeah, a couple of really interesting use cases jumped out at me as you were talking about that with the smart cameras in the room that are kind of automating different types of analyses. Like you could have it automatically tracking the food that you're eating, right? It just knows what it is. It can see the plate. It can identify them. It can segment all the objects and upload those to a database, which I don't know if you know, but currently is a huge pain in the ass. You've got to take pictures of it and tag them on. It's, it's a really big deal. I mean, it, it could also watch you as you work out, correct your form, correct your posture if you're slouching, track the amount of light you're getting every day and, and correlate that against the naps you take or how sleepy you look or how often you blink or yawn, things like that. It actually, a lot kind of jumps out at me as you begin talking about what you want to do. Yeah, these are all great examples. Our posture can be measured. Our activities can be measured. And we could build apps on top of a platform where all it did was give developers an understanding of what's happening in the world. So with this kind of thing, obviously, there is an enormous potential for violations of privacy or stealing people's identity on a scale and with an intimacy that is unimaginable today. What thought have you given to these sorts of issues and what is Infopop doing to try to ameliorate them? Yeah, so this kind of stuff that we're talking about is definitely the most intrusive kind of technology that will have ever have existed in all of humanity, especially in a context where there's cameras in people's homes. And so it's incredibly serious and requires extraordinary new protocols for privacy. So for examples of how I intend to navigate this, everything that could possibly happen offline will. Every computation that happens about people's identity must be done with their consent. Any information that you share with others is an opt-in system where you say what you are willing, what you consent to sharing. 
Otherwise, I don't think that the world will accept such a product. So I, I've actually speculated on this quite a bit in the past, this idea that you, sometime in the future we're going to have the ability to create what I refer to as the God globe, which we'd have enough surveillance around the globe so that we could actually monitor all life forms on planet Earth. And, and there's, there's good things and bad things, um, uh, aspects to that. Yeah, but certainly when somebody dies in some remote location, you could see that one of the lights go out. You know that something happened there. And right now we don't have that information. So somebody could die in some remote forest up in Alaska and people may not know about it for uh, five or six years from now. Um, and and so with all new technologies, there's the pluses and the minuses and how to, uh, it's, it's always really tricky to navigate the, um, the business world in a way that you're you're focusing on the good, but uh, um, not letting the bad stuff get away on you here. Uh, so it's it's so I can see some of the struggles that you're going to have here moving into the future. Yeah, and it's going to be really important that we set up protocols that ensure the security and privacy of anyone using this technology. This is something that. I feel confident that I, as the the majority owner of this company that is developing this technology and will have a lot of say on the future of this technology, uh, I will be creating protocols where even if a nation state uh, did something to try to encourage me or someone at the company to do something that is not aligned with the customer's interest or breaks their privacy, um, some, such as nation states do things like blackmail, they do things like bribery. I will be setting up protocols that make it so that not, not even I can access any user data uh, that is not consented by, by, the, by the customer. What do those protocols look like? The protocols start with consent. So any customer that says that we can use their data for a specific purpose is going to be defined precisely and not over broadly. And it will be an opt-in system. We haven't created these protocols and implemented them yet because we haven't developed the products that we're going to be selling to customers. Uh, but by the time we do develop these products, protocols will include measures that protect users from anyone uh, accessing their personal data that they haven't consented to being accessed. Do you worry at all about a person being able to deduce someone else's identity because hackers and identity thieves and various other miscreants have proven to be pretty clever as far as this goes and being able to, to, Oh, I, I'm, I'm sure you know the stories I'm talking about, but, but where they find your identity in a way that you never would have imagined they'd be able to do. And they're able to, you know, look at some transaction and correlate the zip codes and figure out that you were there when, and nobody else would have known that. Are you at all worried about a person being able to perform maneuvers like that, given the volume of data that you're collecting? Yeah, I am the most worried about that. And the way we have to approach this to ensure privacy of people in such a important context, we need to be the leaders in the space of, of cryptography and encryption and protocols that ensure the privacy of, of users. Yeah, we were speculating the other day on this this idea of um, how you uh, create privacy in um, in a world that's connected all together, and 
we, we came up with this idea of having a cookie box and all of our cookies are in the box and uh, you it only gets tapped into if you allow it to get tapped into. And so then you control your cookie box all the time, which is kind of a, it's, I think it's a product waiting to happen here. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very low tech metaphor. <laughs> I like that. So what are some of the applications that you think might be built on top of a spatial computing platform? And I'm not imagining search so much, and I'm not imagining the far future where we're training AGIs on it, but MMORPGs or something like Pokemon Go, but presumably a thousand times better, or new, new kinds of, um, uh, I don't know, pornography or terrorism, anything. Like, like, what are some of the things that could happen with this technology that excite or terrify you? Yeah, so I, I think a good way to think about it is for people that are familiar with Siri shortcuts, it's going to be a very similar kind of logic. So an interesting example for my own life is I want to be able to turn on the towel warmer when I'm in the shower. So the way this would look is in the graphical user interface, you would say, when I am in this point in space, the shower, I want to turn on the towel warmer during the duration that I am in the shower and then turn it off when I exit the shower. And this will be you know, three, three points in a logic that you can specify based on something pretty simple. But I think that there's going to be thousands of little things like this that people can, as a community, develop their own little apps. And more interestingly, in the future, there's even possibilities for giving you more, uh, giving you deeper insights into the nature of how we behave. There's a big push in the space for self-improvement and improving mental health. So we can give developers access to try to improve the mental health of society by building apps that let us know if we're lying in bed awake for too many hours a day. Or it's maybe not the best example, but <laughs> you can kind of get a point. Sure. Yeah. Your, your robot notices that you've been moping for a while and wonders if maybe you might not want to go outside and get a little fresh air and sunshine. Right. And a platform would be the comp computational layer that both guarantees the privacy of the user and enables the interesting functionality. So part of my background is I've worked as a human factors engineer and in human factors, um, we use this, uh, the science of anthropometry, which is the size and shape of, of the human body. And um, th these are all static measurements that have been taken, uh, some like 950 different areas, like the distance around your knuckles and how far your wrist will deviate one way or the other, and uh, uh, how tall people are and how heavy they are. And it, 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 would, it seemed to me that this would be the perfect tool for making what I refer to as a dynamic anthropometry so that we're actually measuring people in motion. Um, so a lot of these, these anthropometric measurements are used for making clothing and furniture and things like that. But we're, we're not good at making clothing for people that are, are star athletes. Um, people are walking, their, their feet are moving, and they're flexing in ways. There's little nuances to the movement that we're still not capturing. And it would seem like this is these are some of the use cases that would be um, extremely valuable to uh, the, the indus uh, different industries. Um, 
and and so I, I, I my head's kind of buzzing with some of the opportunities that I think are are hanging out there for you. Yeah, I think motion data is really exciting. Imagining products that could be built on this kind of technology that know the shape of your body and the motion of it and can generate a product that's based on your body in a way that wouldn't be possible in most contexts. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Yeah, there's this whole realm of individualized and personalized manufacturing that's just beginning to get going. And this would be, I think, a really powerful driver, a powerful set of inputs into any company that's trying to build products for people that are, you know, so bespoke as to be appropriate for this one person. Yeah, totally agreed. Have you given any thought to how spatial computing might interface with other technologies? So we're getting really speculative here, but what might happen when superhuman artificial intelligence is interacting with this? Or what kinds of blockchain applications do you think might be built on it? I can imagine in the far future that the blockchain will be integrated into a holographic relationship with the rest of the world. So any kind of spatial information will be transmitted as a hologram to us on something maybe like a blockchain, but definitely something distributed where storage and computation is distributed. It's embedded in our physical worlds and transmitted as a hologram for the viewer to see. So that's an example of the crypto area of the future. AGI is a really interesting one. I think that AGI will be incorporated into things like search and spatial information will be a component of that but inform the AGI to operate on whatever it's trying to operate on. So if I want to query something about the world, I can query something very high level and requires number crunching and, and, uh, and analyzing the collective information of all of our physical world to generate new understanding. So when, when you pitch this, when you, when you pitch this to investors, you must use some use cases that um, are near and dear to their hearts. Um, what, what kind of use cases are you pitching? The thing I think excites investors uh, a lot, that uh, specifically investors that really see our vision, is the embodied cognition element of this. So it's both the information and it's also the future of what kind of bandwidth we can have with that information looks like in the future. And that's where the brain-computer interfaces come in. So embodied cognition, to define that, is understanding cognition is not just what's happening in your brain, it's a cognition that's happening at, in the relationship between your brain and the physical world, uh, both in the body and outside of the body, and how there's cognition happening in a, in, a, in a loop. And when computers have higher bandwidth with our brains and more information about the physical world, it allows for us to 
get closer to what we think of as AGI ourselves. So that conception of artificial general intelligence is it emerging out of humans interacting with their environment, but dramatically enhanced with an algorithmic intermediary. Like the way we search, the way we understand things, all of that will be will be upgraded by the technology that you're developing. And that will be artificial general intelligence. I think it will be one style of artificial general intelligence. That's really interesting. It, it also occurs to me that a lot of this data could be used to train artificial general intelligences or just narrow AIs more, more broadly because it's, it's sort of well known that they need, uh, they need to interact with environments that are fairly realistic in order to learn to model things better, in order to learn cause and effect relationships. Have you made these data available to companies that are trying to further that goal? That's a good question. Uh, I haven't really talked with many companies in this space yet, um, but I think that in the vein of sharing technology to promote things like security and privacy is definitely of interest to us. I think things like artificial and general in intelligence is very relevant to this area. And so I, I would expect over time we are going to be getting more involved in that community. So I'm a machine learning engineer and I spend a lot of my time dealing with data. I'm kind of just maybe morbidly curious as to what the data that you use look like. So are, are these rows in a snowflake database? What, what kind of data do you get? Like what's the storage format and, and how do you load it and operate with it? So we're really early in what we're doing and we're learning as we go, but some, some ideas of where we're going with this are, so one concept we're looking into is homomorphic encryption as a method to allow for the for the computation of very private data in a way that uh, better preserves the privacy of that user's data. And of course, again, this would be a consent opt-in thing. Uh, so there, if a customer wants to be able to share their information to be used along with the entire network of information to develop better products, then we would do so in the most privacy forward way possible, depending on the user's level of consent that they've specified. And then the other element of this is everything that could possibly happen offline or within a single network ought to happen in that context. Have you given any thought to various ways in which people might monetize their data streams? I mean, if, if I'm generating terabytes of data every day and that feeds into a stream of other people doing so and people are, are making billions of dollars developing products for individuals that are shaped like me or walk like me, is, is there any way that I might get a piece of that back? That's a good question. I think that in a world where we start to see products like social networks get into paying users for the attention and value that they're bringing to the network will probably be a similar time where people will want expect to get paid from their spatial information or want to get paid with their spatial information. One one of the scenarios we brought up in the past is this idea of well we were we we're speculating on this idea of how to create a uh, a thousand different revenue streams in a single day. And it, it had to do with uh, people wearing uh, electronic uh, T-shirts and clothing so that you actually have video surfaces on your body. So their job would be to walk around and get people to notice them. So anytime 
two eyeballs were staring from the same person at this uh, this ad marketing campaign that was going on in your body, um, that it would register an impression, and then you get paid seven cents or three cents for that impression. So as you're walking around all day, your your job is to get noticed, and so you're you're doing all kinds of crazy antics and stuff, jumping up and down, or you make sure that you go into places where there's lots of people. That's the first thing you need to do, and then over the course of an entire day you could have a thousand different revenue streams come in all micro payments naturally but um we 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 speculate that that would be kind of an interesting fun business model to to run with that sounds like a nightmare can you imagine (laughs) if people were incentivized to be the biggest jackasses they could be and they got paid for it and 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 they got more money if they did it in in crowded places i mean the streakers you'd get at halftime the (laughs) the people dancing on tables in crowded restaurants Uh, (laughs) you've got to stop this guy you're the only one that can do it <laughs> well, I can imagine that there will be a minimum bar of traction before people will make a dime, or or just like technological barriers to that kind of thing. Like you, you cannot come in here with your cameras trying to get you know Zuck, Zuckerberg dollars or whatever, getting people to notice you. That won't work here. <laughs> yeah, I hope for a future where things are not inflammatory due to an algorithm on how people get paid. Yeah, no kidding. Um, it seems like you've thought a little bit about the philosophy that you, you mentioned embodied cognition. And I wonder just giving you all the space you, you want to need, what sorts of philosophical insights do you think might come out of this? So what does your Napster moment look like? <laughs> <laughs> I think that people might develop a perspective on their own minds that is different than how people may think about their own minds today. The interesting element of embodied cognition is that the more bandwidth that there is between semantic information that's being externalized from the environment and its connection with our own minds, the more connected they seem. Computers that do smart computations outside of our brains will give us a different perspective on where our brains begin and end. It's not just in our skulls, it is in our environments. And the higher bandwidth that that information has with our brains, the more we will start to think about the external environment and the computers in our external environment as extensions of our brains. This reminds me of the Andy Clark, uh, David Chalmers thesis of the extended self where there's a meaningful sense in which some fraction of our memories are in the notes that we take and some fractions of our working memories are, you know, in the little mnemonic devices that we use. Is this sort of in line with what you're describing? That we're going to come to see, we're we're going to come to conceptualize ourselves as being located more diffusely than we tend to now. Do I have that right? Yeah, I think so. In the immediate, we are somewhat diffused in a particular form of cognition, such as statistical information. We want to know the numbers of reality, and we want things to be computed cognitively and for semantic information to be returned to us. And we can get that through things like reading and speech. In the future, I see embodied cognition taking the form of a combination of artificial general intelligence and brain-computer interfaces 
and a distributed array of data that is used by those technologies to increase the bandwidth that we have with this information. So you've said that several times, increasing the bandwidth. What do you have in mind for that? I'm having trouble parsing that down in concrete terms. What what do you mean by increasing the bandwidth? There's only so many words we can read in a book per minute. There's only so many words that we can speak in a minute that we can hear. There's only so many scenes that we can be a part of at one given moment. If we have the ability to increase the number of words that we can understand in a minute, that we can communicate in a minute, the more information that we can gather in any given minute is an increase of that bandwidth. So but you're saying it in terms of words, but it doesn't sound like you're actually wanting to increase the number of words. It sounds like you want to change the way we interface with the environment. In the short to medium future, I imagine we'll use hearing and sight as the primary user interfaces for understanding information about the physical world. So we might get audio instructions on where to walk in a physical space, what is around us, things that are useful for us in that moment, uh, or we'll get a visual representation of information. So for example, if I'm trying to navigate to some room in a novel environment, I might see an arrow that just points me on where to walk in space. And that is an increase of bandwidth because I'm no longer having to ask someone where something is or have to hold a memory in my own brain of where something is. Yeah. Or, or you could be considering different lunch places and the buildings could be color coded based on how crowded it is on the inside. And that's just a way of overlaying it in a format that's very natural for a human to, to utilize. I mean, visual information, quite a lot of our cortical real estate goes over to that. And so I've always figured if you could just find some way of transposing information in the, into the key of images, you could increase bandwidth and if done correctly and consistently could be a pretty substantial increase on just the, the baseline human. Yeah. It's got to be simple and relevant. The spatial information allows us to get things to be more simple and relevant because we have a higher fidelity understanding and with a higher fidelity understanding, we can explain things with a very precise scope in simple language or imagery. It's, it's always occurred to me that we've been trained from birth to think three, uh, two dimensionally. We have, we have two dimensional paper, two dimensional books, two dimensional whiteboards and blackboards in school. We have two-dimensional screens on our computers. Everything is is two-dimensional, and yet we live in a three-dimensional world. Um, but we don't have good devices yet to interface three-dimensionally, and that's that's where you and your technology comes in. Um, and it seems like this opens the door in ways that people will have a hard time comprehending because they're so trained to think two-dimensionally. Um, I often give this example of if the, we throw the monitor away on our computer and display things three-dimensionally, what would it look like to surf the internet three-dimensionally? What would it look like to um, to display three-dimensional charts and graphs? What does that third dimension represent? Um, and, and we can't even grasp that that uh, stuff right now. Now, we're, we're getting into that with all the VR and AR that's being developed at the moment, but we're still a long ways from... Um, I, I think we're, we we need to kind of raise a generation of young people that are 
trained early on with that technology and before we can really grasp what the full capabilities will be. Yeah, I've I've been thinking about user interfaces in three-dimensional space, and I have a couple of things I'd say that I could predict. Text will remain two-dimensional forever. Yeah. It's most legible when it's two-dimensional. Yeah, right. And so that should be insightful of what we can expect these interfaces looking like for a long time. Yeah, but numbers can be three-dimensional. Okay. Well, I mean, even even other kinds of representation of not text per se, but actuarial data. Like the, I, I was thinking of the Kipu when when you were just talking about the the Mayan system of tying knots, where it wasn't just it was the colors that conveyed information. It was the kinds of knots and their distribution. It was three dimensional, so how they related to each other. It was a fantastically information dense medium of communication. And based on the work of scholars like Gary Erton and various other people. My understanding is that it's now the consensus that this form of writing was going from just a way of tabulating information to actually being a form of written communication. It was making that transition when the Mayans were wiped out. So I definitely agree with you that you're probably going to read Moby Dick in two dimensions, but it's not clear to me that there, there isn't room for really, really rich ways of presenting data that utilize three dimensions or even four, if you consider, you know, kind of movies through time. Yeah, it's quite thought provoking. I imagine that we will see progress in two dimensional spaces, higher information dense typography using other elements than just the forms of letters that we're used to. And I'd be interested to see how three dimensions might impact that. My hunch is that because our eyes are just in, it's oversimplifying, but our eyes are basically two dimensional photoreceptors. And the three dimension, the three dimensionality that we have in our understanding is rather kind of vague and actually not that much different than the two dimensional experience. We just had one eye. Three dimensions is something that we vaguely see. And to witness a three-dimensional object that is supposed to convey some kind of meaning similar to text, I imagine not replacing text. Oh, probably because not. it wouldn't be that much better. Yeah, that, that could certainly be the case. I, I just wanted to bring that up as a potential counterexample and, and uh, sow the seeds of further investigations. No, I, I just think that this is a fascinating technology that you're working on. And I think it's such virgin territory. It's just wide open. I, th- I think the the opportunities are are, are quite um, endless as, as you keep going down this rabbit hole. Yeah, and I encourage anyone who is interested in this stuff to reach out to me. I think that this is going to be something that is going to be a collaborative effort. And I will be taking a community-first approach with everything that we're doing. So... If anyone's interested in spatial information, interested in this kind of technology of increasing the bandwidth that we have with the information in our physical worlds, um, I'm my my DMs are open on Twitter, and yeah, let's let's keep in touch. Well, speaking of that, why don't you tell the audience how they can get in touch with you? I mean, Twitter. What else? Is that your preferred way of doing it? Yeah, Twitter's probably the best way <laughs> at this point in time. Uh, my handle is at Kai Faust. And then, does Infopop have a website? No. okay excellent well thanks so much for being with us today kai we really appreciate it thank you 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.